0: Hello, and welcome to Digital Nomads, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie, and this episode is a special bonus episode in honor of Women's History Month. Today, we're talking about the ancient queens of the Arabs. And if you haven't already, I strongly recommend listening to the episode just before this one, which is more generally about the ancient Arabs. I'll be back in a few weeks with the next episode, another installment in the Ancient Nomads series, this time all about nomads in the Bible, so stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the episode. Historians don't like nomads. Nomads are important to history in most parts of the world, but they're frustratingly difficult to capture with the tools of the historian, which are written sources and the archaeological and material record. For obvious practical reasons, nomadic pastoralists or hunter-gatherers don't maintain written archives or libraries, and the transience of a nomadic lifestyle means that nomads leave relatively little archaeological trace. The perennial historical dilemma, namely that what tends to be preserved are sources recording the lives and exploits of the elite, is therefore compounded when talking about nomads, because the majority of our written sources about nomads throughout history come from the sedentary powers interacting with the nomads around them— whose scribes and historians recorded the names and biographies and genealogies of the nomadic elite, the tribal leaders who traded and negotiated with and sometimes raided the settled territories. So as with so much of the historical record, the lives of women, children, and the lower rungs of society are nearly impossible to detect. Except in those frustratingly rare cases when a woman occupies the ranks of the elite, as was the case with Shemsi, an ancient queen of the Arabs. Shemsi, Queen of the Arabs, is documented in Assyrian chronicles as governing over the Arab tribes starting in around 733 BC. And specifically, she was queen of an Arab tribe called the Kidarites, who occupied an area known as Kidar, which at its largest stretched from the Sinai through the Negev Desert to southern Jordan and northern Saudi Arabia. The Kidarites were one of the largest and most powerful nomadic Arab tribes between approximately the 9th and 2nd centuries BC, and so in Assyrian sources, they are sometimes confusingly conflated with all Arabs or presented as somehow representative of all the Arab tribes. Hence why Shemsi is named as Queen of the Arabs, although she was a queen of one Arab tribe, albeit the most prominent one. By focusing on Shamsi in this episode, I don't want to make it seem like she was an anomaly by being a female leader of the Arabs in this period, because she wasn't. In fact, she was both preceded by a queen named Zebibe, who ruled from 738 until 733, and succeeded by a queen, Yatyeh, who ruled for possibly over 40 years. And Yatye was succeeded in turn by another queen, Telhunu, who was succeeded in 675 by Queen Tabua. So for a period of at least 70 years, the Arabs were governed by a succession of queens, all of whom are documented in Assyrian chronicles as leading their people during times of war, negotiating and making peace treaties with the Assyrians, overseeing large and complex trading networks, and in some cases also serving as their people's primary religious leader. However, for reasons that will become clear as we look at her biography, Shemsi is the most prominent and best documented of these five queens in the Assyrian sources, so that's why I'll be focusing on her this episode. We don't know much about Shamsi's life until she appears on the Assyrians' radar around 732 BC, but we do know that her predecessor, Zabibe, abdicated in Shamsi's favor as leader of the Arab tribes around 733 BC. And we know even less about Zabibe except that she was a vassal of the Assyrian king, who at the time was Tiglath Pileser. And here we need to take a brief sidebar to contextualize the Assyrian side of the story a bit. Uh, We've probably all heard of the Assyrians, one of the greatest early civilizations that existed in various permutations for almost 2,000 years. In the 8th century BC, we're talking about what historians call the Neo-Assyrian Empire, which existed from the early 10th until the early 7th century BC. The Neo-Assyrian Empire was in a period of stagnation when Tiglath-Pileser took the throne. It was beset by revolution, civil war, pestilence. But Tiglath-Pileser changed things around for the Assyrians, making far-reaching changes to the Assyrian government, bureaucracy, and military He embarked on a series of military campaigns against former parts of the Assyrian Empire that had been lost, including large parts of modern-day Iran, Turkey, and Armenia, but he also aimed to expand the Neo-Assyrian Empire beyond its former borders by bringing under its sway basically all of Mesopotamia and the Levant. And I'll put a map of the Assyrian Empire under Tiglath-Pileser up on my Twitter so you can get a sense of its geographical extent. The majority of our information about Tiglath-Pileser's campaigns and military victories come from Tiglath-Pileser himself, usually in the form of inscriptions on the walls and gateways of his palaces. We also have other written sources of what Tiglath-Pileser got up to, including from the Old Testament, and all of these sources combine to paint a picture of ruthlessness and a no-holds-barred approach to military strategy. One inscription describing Tiglath-Pileser's victory over Urartu, a kingdom to the north of Assyria in the area of the modern-day Caucasus, says that he killed their warriors and filled the mountain gorges with their corpses. Of his victory over the Aramean tribes in the area of modern-day Syria, an inscription says that Tiglath-Pileser destroyed and devastated their cities and burned them with fire. I reduced them to mounds and ruins." of his campaigns to the Galilee, an inscription records that I enveloped them like a dense fog and I utterly demolished them. The peoples who did not subjugate themselves to Tiglath-Pileser or who refused to pay tribute were vanquished, their rulers killed and replaced either by a more pliant relative or by a governor assigned by Tiglath-Pileser. In some cases, also, the peoples themselves were displaced and resettled in another part of the Assyrian Empire, probably to reduce the risk of homegrown rebellions and to allow Assyrian officials to keep a more watchful eye over subjugated peoples. Of course, these accounts of Tiglath-Pileser's brutality come directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak, so they perhaps should be taken with a grain of salt and probably not always read literally. Uh, Given that they often took the form of monumental inscriptions that would have been publicly visible, including to visiting rulers and ambassadors and dignitaries, they were probably meant to be a not very subtle reminder of just how good Tiglath-Pileser was at cutting people's hands off if they didn't pay their tribute. Tiglath-Pileser's inscriptions record some fascinating details about his campaigns and the people he campaigned against, even though some reading between the lines is necessary in order to see the situation from the point of view of the people he was conquering. Let's return to Queens Zabibê and Shemsi. An early inscription records that Zabibê was paying tribute to the Assyrians by the year 738 B.C., She's mentioned in a few different inscriptions along with a list of other leaders, followed by a list of all of the goods that Tiglath-Pileser received from them. Listen to this list of names of leaders, and I apologize in advance for inevitably butchering the pronunciation, but see if you can spot the difference between how Zebibbe is referred to versus all the other leaders. So... The payment of Kushtashpi of the city Kumuhu, Rahianu of the land Damascus, Menahem of the city Samaria, Hiram of the city Tyre, Sibiti Bi'il of the city Biblos, Uriki of the land Kuwe, Pisiris of the city Karkemish, Eni'il of the city Hamath, Panamu of the city Sama'al, Tarhulara of the land Gurgum, Sulumal of the land Melid, Dadilu of the city Kaska, Wasorme, of the land Tabal, Urbala, of the land Tuhana, Tuhame, of the city Ishtunda, Urimi, of the city Hubishna, and Zabibe, Queen of the Arabs. So as you hopefully noticed, that final mention of Zebibe, Queen of the Arabs, is different from the preceding list of names, where all of the names take this format of the name of an individual, followed by the city or the land that they are presumably the ruler of. In contrast, Zabibe is given a specific title, queen, and she is associated with a specific people, not an area or a city or a geographical region, but the queen of the Arabs. And without more context, we shouldn't read too much into this, but it's interesting to note this nomenclature as a possible way of conveying information about a nomadic group. Zabibe is queen of her people instead of queen of her land or queen of a city, suggesting a belief that a nomadic people cannot be so easily identified with a specific fixed piece of land. And what did Tiglath-Pileser receive from these rulers? He would love to tell you. From them I received gold, silver, tin, iron, elephant hides, ivory, multicolored garments, linen garments, blue-purple and red-purple wool, ebony, boxwood, All kinds of precious things from the royal treasure, live sheep whose wool is dyed red purple, flying birds of the sky whose wings are dyed blue purple, horses, mules, oxen and sheep and goats, camels, she camels, and their young. From this, we don't know who sent what to the Assyrians and in what quantities, but they paint a picture of quite some wealth in minerals and materials and livestock. Not all of which were native products either, so we can infer quite a bit about the products that were available to these rulers and that were considered valuable, as well as what trading networks they might have had and with whom. We don't actually know why Zabiba was already paying tribute to the Assyrians in 738 B.C., Tiglath-Pileser's armies hadn't yet made their way as far as Zabibe's lands in the northwest Arabian desert, but they were gradually making their way west and south from Mesopotamia. So as nearby trade centers like Damascus and Tyre were conquered and forced to pay tribute, perhaps Zabibe preemptively chose to make herself an Assyrian vassal taking an oath of allegiance and paying tribute in the hopes of preventing the Assyrians from interfering with the trade routes crossing through Zabibes territory. This trade was conducted primarily along a route called the King's Highway that connected Egypt with Mesopotamia, crossing through the Sinai Peninsula before turning north to cross through Jordan, Palestine, Lebanon, and Syria— Cities like Jerusalem, Damascus, and Palmyra lay on the king's highway, but otherwise it passed mostly through empty or relatively unpopulated lands. Routes branched off from it eastwards to connect the king's highway with Mesopotamian and Assyrian cities like Babylon, Ashur, and Nineveh, and along the way they crossed through the Jordanian and Arabian deserts and exactly the Arab's territory. So when leaders like those mentioned in the list of tributaries from earlier, like Rahianu of Damascus and Menahem of Samaria and Hiram of Tyre, all of which were important cities on the king's highway, when these became Assyrian vassals, probably Zabiba joined them in order to avoid a disruption of trade and of her people's income from trade. So when Zabiba abdicated her throne to Shemsi, again, this was for reasons we don't know, Shamsi in turn swore an oath of allegiance to Assyria, but it didn't take long for Shamsi to renege on that oath. In 732 BC, a nearby ruler, Rahianu of Damascus, rose up in revolt against the Assyrians. We know Rahianu from the previous list of rulers, and he's also mentioned separately in an earlier inscription recording a separate tribute received just from Rahianu. The inscription has some lacunae, so we don't know the full amount of the tribute, but we do know that he sent to Tiglath-Plesser at least three talents of gold, 300 talents of silver, and 20 talents of labdanum, which is a resin from trees that at the time was used as both incense and medicine. The unit of a talent is a tricky one to convert, especially for this period, but suffice it to say that this was probably not an insignificant amount for the ruler of an individual city-state to have to pay up. It's likely that this recorded tribute was a one-time thing upon the conquest of Damascus and that Rahianu's regular tribute going forward was included in what I read in the list of tributes earlier. But still, understandably, it seems like Tiglath-Pileser's new vassals were chafing at the burdens imposed on them and seeking to escape from them. So, Shamsi threw in her lot with Rahianu against the Assyrians. Yet another inscription tells us that she transgressed her oath. The Assyrians had recently subjugated the kingdom of the Edomites in the area of modern-day southern Jordan and the Negev Desert— and next they turned their attention to the rebellious queen of the Edomites' Arab neighbors. The details of the ensuing conflict are preserved in a short inscription. As for Shemsi, queen of the Arabs, At Mount Sakuri, I defeated 9,400 of her people. I took away from her 1,000 people, 30,000 camels, 20,000 oxen, 5,000 pouches of all types of aromatics— thrones of her gods, the military equipment and staffs of her goddesses, and her property. She, in order to save her life, set out like a female donkey to the desert, a place where one is always thirsty. I set the rest of her possessions and her tents on fire. She became startled by my many weapons and the terrifying radiance of the god, my lord Ashur, overwhelmed her. She brought camels and she-camels with their young to Assyria before me. I spared her so she would praise the victory of the god Ashur. I set up governors of mine over her and ten thousand soldiers. This final scene of Shemsi bringing camels as tribute to Tiglath-Pileser in Assyria is perhaps represented in a series of panel carvings from the central palace in the Assyrian city of Nimrud, Uh, that are now in the British Museum. In one of the carvings, which date to 728 BC, a woman leads a group of camels, holding her head to her forehead, possibly in a gesture of submission. In another relief, two Assyrian horsemen charge after a fleeing man riding a camel, trampling enemy bodies under their horse's hooves. In another relief, after the one possibly depicting Queen Shemsi, an Assyrian official leads two rows of captives, presumably into the presence of Tiglath-Pileser. Although it's not depicted in any artworks, strikingly, Tiglath-Pileser's inscription gives the impression that Shamsi led her people into battle, or at the very least, she was present at the battlefield, because as we're told, she became startled by my mighty weapons. We don't know exactly where this battle took place, as the name Mount Sakuri doesn't appear in any other sources. But after the battle, we're told that Shemsi, in order to save her life, fled into the desert, which is described as a place where one is always thirsty. It's hard to read too much into this, but there's clearly some significance to the desert in the Assyrian imagination. Now, we can also infer that the area that Shamsi fled to was the real desert. Large parts of Mesopotamia and the Levant are desertified to some extent, and Tiglath-Pileser would have been familiar with such landscapes. So the fact that the severity of the nature of the desert that Shamsi fled to is mentioned suggests that she went to the truly arid and uninhabitable parts of the desert, which to the Assyrians would have seemed deeply inhospitable, but which with the Arabs would have been more familiar. As I mentioned in the previous episode about the ancient Arabs, the armies of empires like the Assyrians and Babylonians relied on the knowledge of Arabs to safely cross vast expanses of desert while on military campaigns. And as with the tribute list that I described earlier, we also get a sense from this inscription of the wealth of the Arabs. Tiglath-Pileser took away from them 30,000 camels, 20,000 oxen, 5,000 bags of spices, as well as her military equipment and religious items. And from this list of loot seized from the Arabs, we can also detect their nomadic lifestyle. They lived in tents, and their wealth clearly resided in their livestock and herds, as well as in the spices that they had access to, courtesy of their control over important nexuses of spice trade routes. We also learned that Tiglath-Pileser appointed a governor, also translatable as a representative, over Shemsi. So she was restored to her position as queen of her people, but presumably with some direct oversight from the Assyrian civic administration, which was backed up by the military might of 10,000 soldiers. This designation of a governor or representative over Assyrian vassal states isn't fully understood. Tiglath-Pileser may have appointed this official to prevent Shemsi from extending aid to any of her fellow rebels who had not yet been vanquished, or just to supervise Shemsi's commercial activities and ensure revenue to the royal treasury. This would become a common tactic in how settled states managed their nomadic subjects. But in any case, Shemsi and the Arabs seem to have flourished, despite the increased Assyrian oversight— In an inscription from 716 BC, the Arabs are recorded as sending tribute to the Assyrian king, who at that time was Sargon II. The tribute was in the form of camels, sheep, spices, and gold, which is a bit more impressive than the oxen, camels, and spices that Tiglath-Pileser took from the Arabs 15 years earlier. So perhaps, as Assyrian vassals, the Arabs in some way also benefited from Assyrian expansionism and the growth of trade that it fostered. Possibly because he was the leader of the uprising, our friend Rahianu of Damascus did not get off as easily. Tiglath-Pileser waged a full-scale, scorched-earth campaign against him. An inscription records that Tiglath-Pileser carried off his loot and his advisors, I dyed the river, a raging torrent... Red like a flower with the blood of his warriors, I broke the weapons of his leader and charioteers, I captured their horses, their mules, his warriors, archers, as well as his shield-bearers and lancers, and I dispersed their battle array. In order to save his life, he fled alone and entered the gate of his city like a mongoose. I impaled his foremost men alive while making the people of his land watch. For 45 days, I set up my camp around his city and confined him there like a bird in a cage. I cut down his plantations and orchards, which were without number. I did not leave a single one standing. I surrounded and captured the ancestral home of Rahianu of the land Damascus, the place where he was born. I carried off 800 people with their possessions, oxen, sheep, and goats. I destroyed 591 cities of 16 districts of the land Damascus." After all of that drama, we still don't actually know how and when Rahianu died. According to the Old Testament Book of Kings, he was executed following the failed uprising, but that's not confirmed anywhere else. We do, however, continue to hear more about the later Arab queens under Tiglath-Pileser's successors, including the accounts of yet more uprisings by yet more Arab queens. But that is another story for another time. So for now, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this Women's History Month bonus episode of Digital Nomads. As mentioned, I will put some maps and images of things I referred to in this week's episode on my Twitter at nomads underscore pod, so please check that out if you're interested. You can also get in touch with me there or by email at digitalnomadspod at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. Thanks so much for listening.